If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only hearing the first half of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I speak with renegade Jungian, author, and spiritual teacher Paul Levy about his latest book, Undreaming Wetiko, and what we can do to combat the archetypal forces of evil that conspire to keep us complacent and asleep in the dream. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider joining the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm here with Paul Levy. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Like I was saying before we started recording, it's been a long time coming. I've wanted to talk to you for years, and I'm happy it finally is happening on the occasion of this new book, um, Undreaming Witiko, which I think is your third book centered around Witiko, yeah? Yeah, no, it's 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 the third of a trilogy, and I'm just really happy to be here with you. So thank you. Yeah. Well, um, I'm imagining that there are people in my audience who may not know of your work, and I was hoping to uh, lay some groundwork before we really get into things. So sure. maybe if you could just offer a, a little uh, bit of personal background, like what's your um, sure. kind of professional background? What, yeah. yeah. A little yeah. bit about who you are. So my my background is is unique in that you know, so I um, had this life transforming spiritual awakening that got that got catalyzed by profound trauma and suffering. And, you know, without going into the story, I was in my early 20s. And I went from being a, you know, a happy, healthy, very accomplished kid and good student and all that to then this unbelievable kind of emotional trauma happened in my family where just the one I guess pertinent piece of information in my father what he got cast in the role of perpetrating his unhealed abuse emotional abuse psychological abuse and I was the recipient and it just created over-the-top suffering and I went inwards um because I quickly figured out I couldn't figure my way out of it with my intellect. And so I just assumed the position of the witness and began delving into my own process, into my own mind. And I was in my early 20s. And and then after a couple of years of doing that very intensely, um, then I got hit by a bolt of lightning in meditation one day, just in my brain, it just ignited. And I went into uh, just this extreme state where I basically began to realize we're having a collective dream. And I was so ecstatic at what I was realizing that it freaked people out. And immediately I got hospitalized and diagnosed and, oh, you're mentally ill and you're going to need to be on medication the rest of your life. 
you know, this was in 1981, and the year before in the DSM, the the, the new discovery of the so-called chemical imbalance had just come out. So every psychiatrist who was diagnosing me with this chemical imbalance, and just a footnote is that a number of years later, the same psychiatrists who were the authors of the DSM-3 in 1980 came out and said, oh, by the way, there's no such thing as a chemical imbalance. We made that up, you know, inspired by the pharmaceutical companies to make more money. I actually have the quotes of the actual psychiatrist in another book of mine. And, um, but I didn't for a second buy into the diagnosis. I was just having this absolute over-the-top spiritual awakening, but psychiatry they almost destroyed me because they were medicating me and pathologizing me and not recognizing, you know, the healthy spiritually awakening part of me. And they were protecting my father, the abuser. It was unbelievable, the incredible insanity and um, abuse that psychiatry perpetrated. And I was, so I was lucky to, um, I got out very quickly of that system and I knew something had happened and all everybody in my world just thought, oh, I'm in denial of my mental illness. And so it took me a long time, you know, over a decade of going to therapy and making art and dreaming and doing plant medicine and studying shamanism and alchemy and, you know, just everything and anything under the sun that I felt was helping me to integrate what I was experiencing. And so then fast forward to maybe 94, that's when I started teaching, because then I realized, well, I'm not like, you know, I'm not like an enlightened person, but I've gone through this initiatory ordeal that has given me some sort of understanding that would be helpful for people. That's medicine. So that's when I started my groups and started giving lectures and workshops and began teaching. And I haven't had to have a job since. I mean, that's been my full-time profession. And then out of that came these books, you know, on Watiko. And um, and that was profound for me because the main thing that I'm realizing is that the medicine for this mind virus that ails our species that we're playing out all over the world and the evil, that's the consequence of it, is um, that the solution is for us to connect with our creative spirit. And so the writing for me was the medium through which I was doing that and through which I was deepening my own healing. And um, so, yeah, I'm not, you know, your typical academic or scholar or PhD or anything like that. Um, no, I have no degree in any of this. And yet so many of my clients are like Jungian analysts or psychiatrists or therapists or, you know, stuff like that my whole trip is just completely experiential and um it almost killed me and it destroyed my entire family it was like the mind virus watiko got into the petri dish of my family and destroyed my entire family and i was a i was like witnessing this and trying to illuminate but then i began to realize oh this same mind virus that came through my father and came into my family was informing the system of psychiatry and even more than that was giving shape to you know the evil and the madness that's playing out in the greater body politic as if they were iterations of a fractal of the same fractal so um you know i've been fortunate in that i've been able to turn my 
direct unmediated encounter with archetypal evil into some sort of medicine and you know that actually is healing me and helping other people if i wasn't able to do that i would have been destroyed i mean it was just overwhelming i mean it was like getting a transfusion or getting bit by a vampire is getting a transfusion of this this what he called mind virus pathogen into my very system and it wanted to make me its host and gradually, gradually over the years, I've been able to alchemically transmute it into my work, really. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot there. Uh, first thing that uh, I'm wondering about, like, well, just to notice that uh, there's the kind of initial trauma with your father, and then there's like further trauma by the system, by the psychiatric system. Right. And gas gaslighting by these uh, psychiatrists and then the family. Um, so that, that's a lot to deal with. I mean, you must have felt quite alone. And, and I'm wondering, like, getting into the depth psychology, the alchemy, the shamanism. Now, was it specific practices that helped you to integrate that experience? Or was it, uh, were they giving you a different context to understand what was happening with you? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So on the one hand, I just, what you said at first, I just want to highlight, I didn't have anyone in the family system who could play the role of the enlightened witness who saw what I was pointing at. So I was pointing at the abuse and the evil that was coming through my father and the whole family system was protecting the abuser. And then I was trying to point that out and everybody thought I was the crazy one and I became the identified patient, you know? So that's the, just to comment on the first thing you said. And then, you know, so I was fortunate in that I knew when I got out of that hospital that something profound was happening to me, but the only reflection I was getting from Western medicine was that, oh, you're just crazy, you're mentally ill. And um, so I just was certain I had to find people who spoke the language who I didn't have to translate to. And I was fortunate in that I found um, some of the greatest of the enlightened teachers in the world from, from Tibet, Burma, different traditions, you know, Theravadan and or Tibetan Buddhism, who I became incredibly close with. And they're like family. I've known them you know, 40, over four, close to 40 years. And so on the one hand, they gave me particular practices to do particular, you know, I was initiated into particular lineages and traditions. And I was fortunate enough to do the practices, not just to read the books or receive the empowerments, but to do the practices. And then I was very self-motivated because I was in so much pain about, you know, from what had happened. There was the double trauma of the abuse of my father, then psychiatry, and I lost all my friends. And I mean, it was it was wild. And so, you know, I was deeply studying the, the work, you know, uh, there's the Young Foundation in New York that I found out about and I was going there and I was, you know, deeply immersing myself in Young's work, so much so that they actually hired me to manage the bookstore after a certain point, because everybody knew me because I was always there. And, um, you know, but then I was just doing, you know, plant medicine or just anything you know, that would help. I was really open because when you're that desperate, the, the suffering was so overwhelming that it opens you up and it doesn't make a difference what tradition or what teacher, if anything, you know, spoke to my soul, I would follow that thread. 
And then over the course, and the whole while I was making art and connecting with my dreams and beginning to have these lucid dreams and the, the traditions I was getting in touch with were helping me understand, oh, I had gotten enlisted into a deeper mythic archetypal process. That really helped instead of just assuming the position of the personalistic lens and seeing everything as, oh, I'm just screwed up and this is what's happening and it's reflecting how screwed up I am. No, I began to understand. No, there was like a deeper divine cosmic incarnation process that all of us are participating in. But I was becoming more conscious of, oh, wow, it's like I'm playing a role in this, in the dream, in a deeper dreaming process. And a major part of it was confronting this darker part, this shadow, not just my own personal shadow, but archetypal shadow, archetypal evil. And I couldn't get away from that. And um, and then over the course of the years, I began to realize, well, I'm synthesizing all of these different, these wisdom, you know, um, these traditions in my own unique way. And that's when I began to write my books and to teach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, two quotes from Jung come to mind. The first one, um, you know, he who looks outside dreams, he looks within awakes. Right. Uh, that yeah, seems like totally. that was a pivotal move for you uh, to stop looking outside for answers, turn inward, and then um, even, uh, yeah, look to other traditions for like that personal myth that Jung thought was so important for us to discover. You know, what is the myth that uh, that you're living? He thought that was such an essential question. Yeah. So you can find a narrative that helps you understand the process that you're undergoing, the role that you're playing, all of that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can but, I comment on that because that's really profound. Because yeah. the idea of this mind virus, the Watiko mind virus, one of the major strategies of it is to distract us so that we put our attention outside. And like, oh, the problem's outside. Oh, the solution's outside. And as long as we do that, then the real source of the problem you know, is within ourselves and we're not looking there because, you know, people hear about this mind virus and, you know, people who've drank ayahuasca or really doing inner work right away, they get, oh yeah, that makes sense to me. But like consensus reality, people hear about a mind virus and it just sounds kind of woo woo and crazy and all that. But in essence, what it means is that the source, because Watiko is a collective psychosis and what it, what, the mind virus, the idea of a mind virus means is that the source and the solution of our collective madness is to be found within the psyche. And that's a no brainer. Where else could the source of our collective madness be found? Mm. You know? Well, I mean, nice play on words. I don't know if it was intentional, but it's a no brainer. I mean, you're not going to find the solution up <laughs> right, in, that in the right. intellect, but yeah, deeper in the psyche. Right. Um, Okay, well, you've been mentioning with Tico as a as a mind virus, as a collective psychosis. Could you go into a little more detail about with Tico? But first, um, was there a time where you maybe had an experience or an encounter where you're able to identify like, ah, this is some kind of entity or archetypal force unto itself? And, you know, how did it, how did you come to identify it as with Tico and all of that? Yeah, well, so so what happened? you know, just to essentialize it. So there were these escalating episodes of abuse from my father. He was just acting out his unhealed abuse instead of him doing his inner work. 
he was just almost like he couldn't not act it out. He compulsively acted it out, you know, by just becoming possessed by some sort of seeming entity where he would just become possessed by this demonic murderous rage. And I was the recipient. And then he'd be having heart attacks. And as that's happening, he's telling me I'm killing him while I'm being afraid I'm going to be murdered. It was and it kept on escalating. And it was all when I was individuating and separating and stepping into my own self. And so after, you know, the next morning of the worst of those episodes, I had a fever for a year and there was nothing physically wrong with me. I went to hospitals and doctors. And then at the end of, end of that year, that seeming entity that had taken over my father, all of a sudden was now inside of me. And it was like my outer you know, abuse with my father that I just described was now actually getting enacted inside of my own mind. And, and, and that's the way abuse works. Like somebody might play the role of the abuser, then they exit stage left. And if the abuse takes hold, it gets, it gets internalized in our minds such that we then enact the abuse. And that's crazy making, you know, to see like a part of us turn against ourselves and and destroy ourselves so that was really the initial experience of like what is this because i saw it was me doing it to myself and i didn't know how to stop but it was also as if there was some sort of other seeming entity and i say seeming because i don't want to invest it with yeah. an actual reality that it doesn't warrant and so all of a sudden once that happened i realized i had a big problem because i went from being very accomplished young kid to not being able to live my life and that's when I began and then I began dreaming night after night after night these incredible dreams that were showing me that yeah I what I was dealing with I was having a direct encounter with evil and it was either going to destroy me or drive me crazy or make me its host or if I was able to navigate it there was a potential of maybe transforming it and myself into something that was helpful you know mm -hmm. so and then and then i just began more and more tracking holy cow this seemingly this this malevolent energy was actually informing events in the world collectively in the greater body politic of our planet it was informing my own unconscious reactions it was operating through my own blind spots, through my own mind. It was operating via relationships where all of a sudden people who are, you know, partners or lovers or friends or, and they, they're really connected. All of a sudden there'd be a misunderstanding or they wouldn't be able to hear each other, or there's a sense of feeling hurt or projected on, and then they would separate. And I began to realize, wow, it's as if backstage under the scene, behind the scenes, is this seeming energy or entity that's inspiring this incredible separation. Mm. And so I began to, to have the realization, oh my God, I'm tracking something. And even more than that, that the whole abuse was actually, you know, this like, it was like something was being shown to me. It was like this revelation, you could say, this living mm. revelation that and I'm still unpacking what was being what was being shown to me through my encounter with evil and that's one of the things i point out in my work is that the watiko um, psychic epidemic 
that's playing out all over the world, that it actually is a revelation, that it's teaching us something that is incredibly important for us to know. But if we don't recognize it, it's going to kill us. Hmm. Well, I mean, so much of your story resonates with uh, experiences that I've had. And maybe just to check with you, like, uh, let me share a bit of my experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I went through some pretty heavy duty traumas when I was young. Um, and when I was 16, there was a few things that happened all in that year that were uh, really traumatizing. And at the time I was uh, exploring lucid dreaming, out of body experiences, that kind of thing. And I had learned that if I, if I took some uh, cough syrup with codeine in it and I did deep breathing exercises that I could leave my body. So I was uh, practicing this one day, lying on my bed, and I, I left my body. And all of a sudden, I could hear and sense something rushing at me. I could hear uh, footsteps on the carpet, and I felt a force uh, rushing toward me. And it scared me so badly, I slammed back into my body and, you know, heart racing, incredibly scared. Now, fast forward. Uh, probably 20 years, and I'm doing um, quite a bit of work with ayahuasca in, in a church where the focus is on um, helping suffering spirits return to the light, just as a summation. So there is a kind of incorporation involved with it, mediumship, that kind of thing. And, and I was visiting a friend who is a craniosacral therapist, and he had offered to give me a, a treatment so that I could experience it. And I'm lying on his table and he's doing um, the treatment on me and it's very subtle movements, very rhythmic kind of rocking motions through my whole uh, body. And all of a sudden, in my mind's eye, there was a demonic face, just like full frame, like that, uh, like that split second shot in The Exorcist where you get to see Captain Howdy, the demon. And it completely shocked me. But in that split second, when I saw that face, I was reminded of that experience when I was 16. Right. And the understanding of it came to me all, all at once that um, because of my trauma, I had invited this entity or opened myself to this entity to come in. And it had been acting behind the scenes of my life um, right. in a way, protecting me by keeping people at a distance through my reactivity, my kind of sharp, tongue and sense of humor and things like that. So it was in a way protecting me from anybody getting too close to avoid getting hurt to that degree again. Uh, but it had started to interrupt my life and what I really wanted, which was, you know, I've gotten married and I was having trouble with my, my wife and I wanted more closeness and I wanted to be kind of free of these uh, unconscious reactions that were causing a lot of disruption in my life. And so then I went through this whole process during the next um, ceremonies of uh, negotiating with this entity and actually thanking it for serving me, but uh, that it was no longer working in my life. And, um, and then I had this whole kind of release ceremony that felt like a rebirth. And after that, I felt like there was a single person inside of me for the first time in a very long time. And I had no way to understand this. And I, I was uh, really careful not to just um, assume that it was an external entity. 
I thought, well, it's possible that there was some, some part of my psyche that uh, got personified and um, some part of my own shadow. I, I'm ambivalent about it. Uh, I, I don't want to make any claims one way or the other, but the way I found was helpful to work with it was to act as if it was an autonomous entity that I could negotiate with. Right. That's exactly right, the way you describe it, because you see these seeming entities there, you know, one way to think about it, when we get traumatized, like, so for me, I got like, so traumatized, that it was like, there was like, my boundaries got, there was like the rupture. And and through that rupture, that's where, you know, this seemingly dark force entered. And um, so the thing is, we get traumatized, which by definition, it's overwhelming, we can't, integrated in the normal way we can symbolically express it. So then we split, we disassociate. And if we don't integrate that, that over the over time becomes, um, it, it's as if, as if once again, it develops a seemingly autonomous life and independent will of its own that's adversarial to us. And so in psychology speak, that's an autonomous complex. Indigenous people call that a demon. That's mm -hmm. what Tico. And the thing is, ultimately speaking, it doesn't have any independent existence at all, separate from your own consciousness. But it's like a profound, it, it's the thing that's needed is to relate to it as if it's an actual objective independent entity. And then, you know, when you do that and you dialogue with it or have relationship with it, you're distinguishing yourself from it. Because it only has power over you when you're blind to it. What Tico is a form of blindness where you're unconsciously identified with it. You can't see it. So then you're unwittingly acting it out. You, you're becoming an instrument through which it acts itself out on our world. So to treat it as if it actually has an independent existence, that's exactly right. And by doing that, you're objectifying it. And by objectifying it, you're actually seeing it, you know, because just remember these seeming entities operate through our blind spots, through our unconscious. And then we unwittingly become the vehicle, you know, mm -hmm. through which, you know, it acts itself out or we act it out unwittingly. So what you're describing, I mean, that's, I, I, that's so completely precisely accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So you would say that uh, this is what you're talking about when you're talking about Watiko, this kind yeah, of experience. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of different ways. I mean, I contemplate it because the whole thing about Watiko, it doesn't even exist. There's no such thing at all, has no independent intrinsic existence from its own side, and yet it can kill us. That's the paradox. So because it operates through our blind spots, through the part of us that has that's not aware. And so that's why I'm continually circumambulating and trying to point at it from all these different ways, because when we see it, we take away its power over us and we become empowered and so the way we were just describing it is as if it's an entity and relate to it like that and all that you know and it's it's really this autonomous complex or this demon but ultimately it just belongs to our wholeness that's one of the the myriad ways of of describing what's eco yeah well that's how um uh, shamanism was helpful to me in the personification of this entity um, and like you said once you personify it or once um, you accept its persona that is presenting 
automatically you're disidentified from it. So there's enough separation there that you can start to work with it or deal with it, right? Yeah. Um, so that's what the shamanic understanding. And can I just say one thing about what yeah. you're describing? This is exactly when you study the work of Jung. It, this is exactly what what he's recommending is to yeah. personify your demons, you know, and then do active imagination with it. That's the way of stripping them of their power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess what I was going to say was that, uh, oh, where was I going to go? Yeah, there's a, there's that whole move of the personification, the disidentification. Um, but that's what the shamanism gave to me was uh, that move. So if we're talking about it as an autonomous complex, I mean, that's so abstract, you know, all that psychological jargon. And I think, think you know, that's what I've been trying to advocate for is for psychology to be informed from other traditions, like spiritual traditions, shamanic traditions. Um, so it's less abstracted and more, like you said, objectified or, or real in a way, personified. Um, that's something that we lose if we're just caught up in yeah. psychological jargon. Yeah, well, the thing is, absolutely. And, you know, um, from my point of view, the idea of an autonomous complex isn't abstract. I mean, that helped me when I found that name. Because, you know, just like in a fairy tale, when you find the name of the demon, you take away its power, you know, so there's this, it's a magical act of finding the name. And it's interesting because so many of my clients are shamans who are therapists, and they're trying to like synthesize those two professions. And, and in the new book, there I think the the like biggest chapter in the whole book is exactly about this, about, about shamanism. And interestingly, I finished that chapter week or two before the lockdown. And I was basically, I didn't realize how prescient I was being. I was saying, oh, our species is going through a shamanic death rebirth experience where we're being forced to descend into the darkness of the unconscious. And, um, you know, what I was pointing out that the major archetype that's activated in the collective unconscious is, is the shamanic archetype. And, um, you know, and I can say a lot more about that. And I should just make clear, you know, I'm, I'm no shaman. You know, I joke only, you know, with my friends and I'm only a shaman in, in my wildest dreams. But the shamanic archetype, which is the deeper pattern, had gotten activated in me because I was so wounded, because I was so traumatized, because of the trauma I split, and um, and then that constellates the shamanic journey. That at a certain point, you know, another part of you goes in search of, you know, this this dismembered, the lost parts, and the lost part, so as to retrieve yeah. your soul. And um, so that that's why I can speak with real authority because I've been doing that, you know, twenty four seven for forty plus years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. A, a good uh, way to distinguish it. Um, it you know, a, a working shaman who's part of a community and doing that work versus the shamanic archetype, which anyone can go through. And it's just a way to kind of name a, a pattern uh, or a phenomenon in your life, like psychological splitting. Well, that's just like the shamanic dismemberment. Um, the going within to recover lost parts to integrate oneself. Well, right. that's the descent into the other world, the underworld, um, classic archetypal shamanic journey. Um, and then the return with some uh, kind of insight or medicine. Exactly. That you can then offer to the community. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And the thing is, 
you know, there are, there are two dangers of the whole shamanic trip. On the one hand, there are people who have a little bit of experience. Oh, they drank ayahuasca once and they have a little insight. And the next thing you know, they're putting out a shingle that they're a shaman, you know, and they have no idea of the powers and principalities they're dealing with. And they could really do damage to themselves and hurt other people. But the other danger is really interesting is for us to stay unconscious of our intrinsic shamanic abilities, you know, mm -hmm. and we all have these incredible like sensitivities or creativity or, you know, um, just these capabilities, you know, of empathy and all that. And if we then compartmentalize those and don't consciously connect with that, that creates poison in, in mm -hmm. our psyches. Yeah. Or even just disempowerment, like, and I'll add to your list, I think um, access to imagination is a big part of right. uh, being a shamanic uh, person or, or or working with that capacity. Uh, if we don't connect to that and liven that in ourselves, we're always going to be looking to somebody on the outside to do the healing for us, right? And so I wrote a book in 2019 based on my experiences called Yoga and Plant Medicine. And one of the little chapters in there was an advocating to be your own shaman, to um, learn practices, learn techniques, to do your inner work and do your own kind of soul retrieval. Um, well, that, I, yeah. I, that, what you were just saying is so right on. I talk about that in my book too, the one that just came out in the chapter on shamanism. I say, yeah, if when you get called, because nobody in their right mind would ever voluntarily choose to be a shaman, yeah. you'd have to be <laughs> out of your mind because the suffering is so overwhelming. Yeah. But if you're called, you know, um, and if you can find a shaman to help you to deal with your suffering, great, then you're in luck. But the majority of people who are called to be shamans know they have to become their own shaman. They have to figure out their own way, you know, and that's why, you know, the shaman is the storyteller, is is the the one who's the dreamer, is the creative artist. It's It's propelling you to in a creative way to metabolize your wound you know into light into medicine you know yeah mm, mm -hmm. yeah well you're an artist as well right there's some yeah. of your drawings and your in your books and um beautiful stuff so how uh how is art helping you to metabolize all these wild experiences yeah 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 no art i mean i can't say enough about the importance the profundity of connecting with our creative process like for me just I think about my books um you know it's not like oh I have all this information and I'm just writing it down to offer no the act of creatively trying to find the words that process itself is deepening my realization of what it is I'm trying to express and um you know so the idea of like I think of me like what you, one way of describing my abuse is that my father I was individuating I was in college and I was realizing I was stepping out of being you know a math economics I was studying you know like really mainstream stuff to, to realizing no I'm an artist and I have to follow my calling and my father somehow interpreted that like oh I have to absolutely obliterate that calling so that my son will become the doctor and lawyer that I envisioned him to be. And so what he didn't realize is that by doing that, by trying to destroy my creative impulse, it actually made it stronger. 
because if it's the true creative impulse, it can't be kept down for long. And the thing about the creative impulse, it's hidden within. There's a figure, you can, we can call it like the, the inner guide or like daimon is another word for it. Mm-hmm. And the daimon is the guiding spirit, the inner guide. It's the source of like our genius, of our calling, of our vocation, helping us to hear our inner voice. And, um, you know, if we connect with that daimon, it it will like inspire us on the path to actualize who we are. But if we don't relate to that daimon and, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not, you know, talented enough or whatever, it then constellates in a negative way and becomes a demon. And but the point is encoded in that daimon is the creative spirit, you know, and that's the spirit. It's like a holy and whole making spirit. It makes us whole. It connects us with ourselves. And, um, you know, it makes me think of the saying in the Gospel of Thomas, if you bring forth what's within you, it'll save you. If you don't bring forth what's within you, it'll destroy you because the greatest poison in the human psyche is repressed or unexpressed creativity. And so, yeah, I can't say enough. I've written extensively in all my books about the profound importance of being creative. And just another thing, for example, in my new book, the one that just came out, there's this philosopher, um, Berdieff, uh, Nicholas Berdieff, who talks about, there's a whole chapter about the profound importance of creativity. And he points out, he's very into the second coming, the coming of Christ. He says, if we participate in our own creative process we are then bringing the second coming into our world through our creative expression but if we're not creative and if we're just passively waiting for the coming of the messiah then we are going to eternally just see the crucified face of christ and we're never going to step into the resurrected body the point of what he's making is that we're playing a key role by us activating and, you know, stepping into and embodying and expressing our creative spirit. We are participating via that act of bringing in, you know, the second coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the first time I encountered that idea where that kind of interpretation of the second coming was in this ayahuasca church in their central altar, they have a cross that has two horizontal beams on it a smaller one above the the typical beam and they say that that represents the second coming of christ which will happen in the hearts of all people or happen in the heart of the individual again it reminds me of Jung saying um, to imitate christ doesn't mean to do exactly as christ did but to live how christ lived in that he was being completely himself he was being right exactly own person and fighting for his individuation right and until it cost him his life yeah yeah yeah. that's exactly right and i'm so glad you bring this up because i mean i i write a lot about this where like i point out that unlike two thousand years ago where like god incarnated through one human being who is kept pure and spotless as the vehicle you know for the incarnation of the deity and think about what happened when christ incarnated on the planet at the exact same moment, who's there but Satan? And think about it like a dream. Well, that's an expression of how polarized the collective unconscious was. There's the symbol of the light, there's the symbol of the dark, and they're separate, right? And what? And this is in the collective works. Young points, he talks about the Christification of many. He's saying what's actually happening now is that God is incarnating not just through one person, 
who's kept, you know, pure, but that God is incarnating through all of humanity, through the collective unconscious, and we actually partake of original sin in that we have a shadow. And so what Jung is saying is that the closer God gets to humanity, the greater the probability of an encounter with evil. And But we ourselves are the vessel that God has prepared to like, in a way, to integrate the opposites, to bring the opposites together. You know, that's the coincidentia oppositorum of alchemy, the union of the opposites. And what why I'm saying this, this is a, a way of understanding, of creating context for understanding what's happening in our world. Because Jung says, the problem of our time is that we don't understand what's happening in our world. And he clarifies what's happening is we are encountering the darkness of the soul, the darkness of our, of the, our own shadow of the deity, of the archetypal shadow. And he also says, he makes the point, he goes, God has um, put a special purpose, that's his quote, into evil that it is most important for us to know. And this is exactly the idea of Watiko. You see, Watiko, it's the source of the greatest evil. And it's at the bottom of all the myriad world crises in which we're, you know, we're inspired to destroy ourselves in so many ways. And yet, being a quantum phenomena encoded in Watiko, it's actually helping us to wake up. It's catalyzing our evolution in the same way that Jung was talking about evil. But if we, what I'm pointing out, my whole work is like, yes, it is revealing. It's like God isn't just revealing him or herself by coming down from heaven in through the light. No, it's actually revealing itself by coming up from the underworld through the through the darkness. And to just what I'm meaning is that light doesn't just reveal darkness, light is revealed through the darkness. And that's very Kabbalistic. And, you know, a lot of traditions talk about that. But yeah, this I could go on and on about this. But what you were saying is really profound. Yeah. Again, I mean, <laughs> Jung had so many incredible insights. You know, I was reminded of something else that he said that the greatest threat to humanity, humanity is man himself. And, yeah, yeah. and talk and talking about how um Christianity as an institution and doctrine had really um not gotten evil right. Uh you know, he he thought that uh, there was too much emphasis on the light and that um Satan was actually like Christ's brother, right? And that he needed they Only, needed to that be was one being. He actually said not just a brother, but they were parts of one being. Mm. Yeah, and he also says in answer to Job, his greatest work, he calls Satan, Satan is the godfather of humanity as a spiritual being. The point is, is that the figure, Satan is a personification of Watiko or evil, that that actually is helping us to wake up. This was an excerpt of a longer conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness thanks